This episode of Above and Beyond is sponsored by Compassion International. To sponsor a child today, simply visit Compassion.com above. Well, episode seven is a little different than the six predecessors here of Above and Beyond. This is, this is my story. Episode seven in this podcast of Above and Beyond is a chance for me to really share those impactful faith stories in my life that shaped, frankly, this podcast, that shaped so many of the relationships of the others that have contributed to Above and Beyond. In fact, over the course of this episode, you'll hear from a number of my friends, the folks that did these six podcasts before this one with me, because they did play a real central theme in my life, in my testimony, and drawing from those experiences, you'll hear a lot more of my experiences And this will be a little bit different as well. This is going to be a two-parter. The very next episode will be after my college career and into my professional life and into what I'm doing now in the media. And this episode will be about my formative years uh, as I came to faith in junior high and what that looked like and the accountability that was such a big part of my story. Um, My football experiences, after all, this is the intersection of faith and sports, and you'll hear plenty of it over the next 45 minutes, and you'll hear the second half uh, in the following episode as we just dig into all that the Lord has done in my life. And one other cool component is you'll hear from my sidekick in this whole venture, uh, James Boy Howdy Osborne is my producer in the mornings on a radio show in Seattle. He is much more than a producer in this process of above and beyond. Uh, his heart has been similar to mine to, to really just put our faith out there, and we'll dig into it together. Thanks for letting me be a part of this, Brock. Let's start here. Tell me about your family, what it was like growing up in the Hubert household. I grew up in a very moral home, very much a treat people the right way, take care of people. My dad grew up Roman Catholic and I think felt somewhat, I don't want to say burned, I don't want to speak for him, but there there was a lack of authenticity in that way. There was, um, it just did not connect for him in that way. My mom grew up in a very private, private home. And a lot of that was the history in her family lines of grandma that was in a horrific Japanese torture camp. Uh, and during World War II, she's Dutch, um, and uh, her family had moved to Indonesia. And when the Japanese took over the South Pacific, she was with her family in a really horrendous situation. And I think that created a lot of privacy out of my grandmother, who we called Hoppy, who was a real warrior in my life and became a real place of some strength and some faith uh, that I pointed to throughout my walk and journey and connected with. But there, there was always a real private aspect because I think of the incredible pain, the torture the hurt that she suffered through, she endured through. And then my grandfather, um, my mom's dad, hid Jews during the war, also in Holland, part of the Dutch underground. So that's some of the background there. And I think that really shaped my mom to be incredibly private and still is. (laughs) She has sons and we joke about it all very much in the public eye. Damon playing professionally and working at the UW and doing all that he does and myself in the most public of form there is and little brother is a coach now and and also I mean all three of us boys all live very public lives and she just wants it private <laughs> from the beginning she just wants everything private so I think in many ways that shaped um, our upbringing was um, as far as a faith element mom wanted it very private and dad while spiritual did not have a real connecting point and a real connection. We went to vacation Bible schools and studies during the summer, though. They surrounded us with really great people. 
in people of great character. You know, looking back, and my dad was an incredibly driven coach, an incredible worker, and and, and work ethic that was second to none. And many of those those elements were, I think, ingrained into our home. But spiritually, spiritually, there wasn't. Um, I wasn't really fed by mom and dad. I do remember, though, James, very clearly um, waking up, <laughs> waking up on weekends watching the 700 Club. Uh, I would get up and I'd be the only one up in the house. And before cartoons would come on or whatever, I would be watching this. This is probably my elementary school years. And I remember crying. I remember being so emotional and watching that. And when mom and dad did wake up, saying to my mom, like, what's going on? You know, am I going to hell? You know, are we going to hell? Why, why, what's heaven and hell? And just being really like wired. I mean, I was intense. I was a very perfectionist, very intense middle child. Luke, life of the party, my little brother, Damon, firstborn, know-it-all. I'm middle child, emotional, intense. And from an early age, having some of that background of wanting to know why and wanting to know heaven and hell and wanting to know the deep matters and crying to the 700 club before I was ever introduced to anything really spiritually. When would you say that your faith really solidified? When would you say that your faith really became personal? That next step certainly came in junior high. So those are, I think, some of my elementary school years. And as I said, to understand, I think, the spiritual story, you have to also know where I was. And I was a really just overly intense perfectionist um, issues. You know, we, we went to counseling. My mom... Got, I think got to a point, and we haven't talked a lot about this since, but it got to a point where she was having a hard time dealing with this unbelievably emotionally intensely wired kid. And we went to some counseling earlier, and it wasn't Christian counseling. It was just traditional counseling and trying, I think, get kind of my emotions in check. Um, some of my perfectionist wiring to a place where I could be a happy kid. <laughs> we had a calendar. Uh, she reminds me of this periodically where we put stickers for smiley faces for a good day. Like, this was a good day. And if you got X number of smiley faces, you got to go to Toys R Us and get a G.I. Joe character or a Nerf basketball hoop or something. And and there was part of my years of that. I think those were a lot of my elementary school years where I was doing some of that counseling and trying to become grounded. And not many kids get held back in sixth grade. And even fewer kids get held back when they've got straight A's in sixth grade. Mm. But I wasn't ready. I was emotionally not even close. I was you know, physically and, and you know all of that stuff a little bit underdeveloped, but most all of it was emotional. I just could not. I, I would sit in class, and if I didn't do well, I would sit there and cry. I mean, I was just an emotional, intensely wired mess. And counseling helped. But uh, Scott Sears in junior high, my youth pastor that eventually really came into my life, that's where the pieces and the puzzle started to get put together of some of maybe my calling or some of my background and some of that, some of that spiritual emphasis came in and Scott really walked alongside, uh, was a huge, huge factor in that. And I think had a wisdom and a real maturity at that point. And this was early in his ministry. You know, I just reconnected in an incredible way with Scott on a fishing trip this summer. And we were talking about these podcasts and we were talking about those early days. And, and I said, why was it? Like, why did you, and where were you in your journey? You know, to, and he said, man, I was right out of college and I was doing youth ministry, but I could just see that you were going to have a platform, that there was going to be some opportunity, that you were super competitive. Your dad's built this amazing football program in the community. 
that there was going to be some platform for you. And I wanted to to see, and, and God put it on his heart to connect with me and see if we could find this intensely wired, perfectionist-driven psychopath and get him psycho for Jesus and get him in a place where he could be grounded and actually have some level of peace. That's what I did not have. I had no peace. What impact do you think your wiring had on your search for God? That wiring and my wiring played a big role because I just wanted to devour it and I wanted to understand it. What do you mean? What what is what does all of this mean? Why it makes sense of all of this for me? And uh, a funny aside, one of the first meetings I had with Scott, I was at Ayland Junior High, and I mentioned my grandparents earlier, Hoppy and Opa. And I was supposed to walk from junior high to Hoppy and Opa's house. They were walking distance after school. And remember, very private. My mom was very guarded. We were very disciplined. We were supposed to be certain places. And I had not told Hoppy and Opa that I was going to go get a Coke and a bite to eat with this youth pastor guy, Scott. And I'd forgotten to tell them that. And Scott and I went out and we just were hanging out. And he was just kind of slowly introducing me. And it wasn't heavy handed and he wasn't thumping me with the Bible, but he was just getting to know me and connecting with me. And, and it, you know, as I said earlier, he felt the kind of need and calling like, man, I need to bring some peace into this kid's life. Like he is, he could really spin out of control. Um, and I need to spin him towards the savior. So, <laughs> so we go out and, and I come back and Scott like pulls into the driveway and Hoppy and Oprah outside the door, fuming mad, fuming and they both spoke with a Dutch accent. They immigrated after the war. So they were mad. Who are you? What are you doing with that boy? You know, and like yelling at him. And Scott's like, oh, I'm sorry. I'm Scott. I'm a youth pastor. We're just hanging out. No, no, not normal. Not normal for a youth pastor or a grown man to hang out with young boys. Not normal, right? And they just lambasted poor Scott. He's like, I'm sorry. And I'm like, I'm sorry, sorry. No, 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 no. It was my fault, my fault. I didn't tell you guys. And oh, yeah, they just gave him the riot act. And and Scott still remembers that 30 years later, as do I. And eventually, man, Hoppy and Opa came to love Scott. And Scott uh, did my wedding eventually. And Opa spoke out. And oh my gosh, we all laughed about that later. But in that moment, getting dropped off after having Coke and lunch with, you know, some some guy, who are you? What are you doing with my grandson? And just freaking out on him. Uh, <laughs> it ultimately came, it ultimately came all together. And, and it was pretty quickly, uh, it was pretty quickly that I started to feel it just, as I said, those puzzle pieces came together of the intensity of something that I was seeking, ultimately God knocking on my heart through those 700 clubs and through people and through church and through the first girl that I thought was cute that came from an amazing Christian family that you know, these pieces of the puzzle were coming together and and he had an absolute calling and plan on my life. From emotionally and physically not quite ready to move on as a 12 year old. Yeah. Fast-forwarding into high school where you become Gatorade National Player of the Year by the time you're a senior. Can you tell me a little bit more about what it was like to see your emotional evolution Mm -hmm. and then a faith that is starting to solidify now through formative teenage years? Yeah, and I think this is where probably a couple of the men in these podcasts come into play a little bit. And I think very specifically, first and foremost, to Matt Hasselbeck. And when Matt talked about the difference in his life between what a president is and what a general is. The head coach one time, he, I think it was going into my fourth year, he was deciding on who was going to be the starting quarterback. And 
it was sort of my chance to finally start and he picked the kid younger than me and I remember he what he said to me he said listen if I was picking a president I would pick you but I'm looking for a general and I'm picking him and it was like all my fears were like realized at that moment like oh my gosh you're right you're totally right and I'm, now I'm angry like now I'm really angry about this um and so I was good at being angry, but I just wasn't good at being angry and being who I wanted to be. And so, um, you know, I think that that was there for sure. What is that? What What is the difference in your in your mind? What is the difference between a president and a general? I don't know exactly what that coach meant by that statement, but I I knew for me what it meant, and I needed to get tougher. I needed to be more authentic. Like you know, politicians can kind of fake it you know, with people and put on a good show and have an awesome resume and, you know, yada, yada, yada. But uh, I think in the context of like a locker room, it's hard to fake it with your teammates. It's hard to fake it with your coaches even, but uh, mostly your teammates and they just know who you really are. And I, I've never been in battle. I've only read about generals, but I, I feel like that lead from the front uh, mentality and like, hey, you know who I am. You know, you're with me 24-7, basically. Uh, you know the real me. To me, when I heard that, I just heard that ping and it brought me back to those junior high and high school years where for me, the president was, am I a people pleaser? Am I out to just be a people pleaser or am I going to stand out? And ultimately in this case, and in that analogy of a president in general, am I going to really let the general of my life lead my life? And I committed my life then in junior high. It was about eighth grade and then into high school and really allow you know, my faith and my savior to be the general of my life. So I think that's where a lot of my journey was early in my faith was, um, was being grounded and really pointing to, uh, and, and that's, I mean, we all know that. And I'm now raising, you know, a daughter that's going to come into these high school years and such incredible years of decision-making and such formative years. And can you, can you really give your life to something bigger than you? And, uh, and in this case, for me, to my faith and to my conviction and to the Savior that was perfect. You know, I tried to be perfect, and I'm going to get a perfect score. And when Mrs. Blazy gives me an A- minus on my English paper, and I'm in the back row crying in class and waiting until everybody comes out and wiping away the tears, and I go up to Mrs. Blazy and say, what was wrong with this? I don't understand. How is this not an A? Uh, I couldn't grasp imperfection. So to have something perfect, something so true, something so pure, something so amazing that wanted to be a part of my life and under really I think growing in that understanding was a big part of my junior high and high school years a big part of my formative uh, testimony and my formative faith was hey man uh, you ain't gonna be perfect and you're not even gonna be close and you're gonna fail a lot in your life and you better learn this really fast and thank God that you have a perfect savior and a son that that not only is there um, in no ways to try to um, emulate, but instead to try to relate with and really grab a hold of and understand that. That's what a lot of those kind of president and general years in my early faith were a part of. And I would say equally, um, boy, howdy, I don't know why I'm calling you James. I would say equally, uh, that is where, and thankfully, thankfully, that is where Scott Sears, even in his um, his baby steps of youth ministry as he was sorting out, thankfully, he understood that I would need accountability. You know, Rocky Seto talked a lot about the guy that kind of came into his life while he was there in junior college. Uh, Rocky Seto, before he went on to USC, 
And Rocky talks about the importance and just how someone coming into your life and infusing your life and that accountability in your life. I think he nailed it. And when I heard his story, man, it brought me back to Mrs. Turner's and all of those times of accountability with my buddies. But I wasn't a believer until 1998 through a teammate of mine, another Rocky, Rocky Brown. He was in the locker room at Southern California, University of Southern California. He shared the gospel with me and in 1998, became a follower of Christ. Even at Mount Sac, I had teammates talking to me about Christ, talking to me about mm. the gospel. I mean, dudes who used to be former partiers, and I mean, at, at the junior college level, it's a little different from the from you know, UW and mm. USC. Yeah. You kind of all walks of life. There are yeah. dudes who used to be in the army, guys who came out of even prison at times, guys like me who was hoping for a second chance. Guys that were, you know, maybe went or went left and now wanted to get another chance at football. I had guys, a guy named Keith Leisure talking to me from Orange County about the gospel. I'm like, yeah, okay, that sounds good. But you know what? I got to get to SC. I was like tunnel vision. And then, so God was really preparing me for the gospel presentation at USC. Okay, so you're a walk-on and you're grinding and you're practicing. And is this, this is your, you have two years to play. Yep. Is this when the other Rocky comes into your life or was it your final year at USC? No, so he he and I walked on together. He was a walk-on from Saddleback Junior College. Matter of fact, he and I played against each other in the simple green Orange County Bowl. <laughs> they beat us in the last second. We tried a two-point conversion to beat them. They, they beat us, but... He's this guy, some crazy dude from Orange County. I've never seen a guy so excited about Jesus. Huh. I'm like, who is this guy? Is this guy for real? Right. And then he just tell, he started explaining it to me. And then after that, it made perfect sense. Let's talk a little bit about sports in high school. You're playing for your dad, legendary coach in the community. Tell me a little bit about what life is like in high school with sports, given the family that you have. Yeah, so that that intensely wired competitiveness was in, in that psycho kind of nature that I had growing up. That that was a lot of like playing with Damon and wiffle ball in the backyard and that just competitiveness. And he always beat me. I could never beat him. And I beat him one time and I gloated in the window while he had to eat dinner and get to like his little league game. That was the only reason I beat him because the game was cut short. And I was just such a such an annoying, competitive, just nasty. Uh, in high, in junior high, the same thing. Before I had any kind of faith element whatsoever, I just wanted to beat Topher Palm so bad, and I wanted to shove it right in his face and Tyson Nazik and all the rest of those guys at Ferrucci Junior High and Baloo Junior High. Not that I remember any of them, right? Because I was not <laughs> intense at all. I wanted to beat those guys so stinking bad, and that was so much of just my competitive fire. And there is no doubt that growing up in the home I did with Damon and with Luke and being in the middle and having the dad's school keys and having old football gear that he'd bring home and we would smash neighbor kids in and having door frames that we would break and basketball hoops that we would break and noses that we would break and lamps that we would break and windows that we would break and just all that competitiveness, right? I mean, just all that competitive intensity that benefited me as a competitor. There's no doubt. And then, and then here comes this, as I said earlier, just the saving grace of some peace yeah, I can take a breath, right? And that there's somebody so much greater than me that has a perfect plan for my life, and I can really latch on to that. And I've got great relationship with Scott. I've got an amazing, neat family of um, of a girlfriend that I was dating that loved the Lord as well. And I've got these other teammates and classmates that we're all working in this thing together. And in some of the intensity of all this sport, 
of some of all this hype. And, and Puyallup High School football became a really big deal in our community. And my dad won state championships. And, and you know, Billy Joe Hobart went through and went to Washington. And Damon went through and went to Washington. And it was really neat, man. We had some incredible, epic high school moments in sports and, and loved every one of them. But man, if I did not have a saving a faith and a grace and a peace, I would, I would, I don't know what would have happened and, and how it would have unraveled. And there were episodes, you know, we lost one game my senior year of a full game, uh, in, in football. And it was up at Sumner high school and it was a huge game, man. To this day, I, when Dane Looker and I, one of my old high school teammates who loves the Lord now, it's just awesome. And he and I talk about our old memories. That was one of them. It was packed. I mean, they had to stop the parking lot. I mean, it was a big, it was a big deal. It was an amazing night. And, uh, and we go back and forth and we end up losing. And I threw a two point conversion low to James Abuayo. How I remember these names and these moments, I don't know, but I threw it a little bit low and it was incomplete. And we lost like 28, 27 or 35, 34. And, and I reverted back to some of that intensity. I came in, I was just uncontrollable, unconsolable. I tried to like rip a drinking faucet out of the wall. I'm taking my helmet, I'm bashing a garbage can and I have just total rage, total rage. And thankfully one of the assistant coaches, Ken Wiseman came over to me and just kind of pulled me by the shoulder pads. Like, what are you doing, man? You know, and I'm, I'm snapped. I mean, I've lost it. I'm just bawling. I'm just going crazy. What are you, what are you doing? You know, where, where is that? You know, I think he even called me. I was like, where's, where's that faith? You know, where, where's your, where's your testimony right now, man? Where, what are you doing? And, uh, yeah. And then I think sobbing ensued and being able to take a breath and he was right. He was right. Where, where is that saving grace? Where is that saving peace? Where is that element that, that has come into my life? That's taken me away from counseling and smiley faces on a calendar. Um, where is that in that moment? I had to learn that. And that was a pretty powerful, I think, life lesson for me. Not that it made losing any more palatable, but it certainly brought some peace and perspective that without it, I don't know, you know, I don't know what I would have done. Probably been like John Kitna, you know, John Kitna in that episode when he pointed to himself at, at Western, playing with central Washington down in Western Oregon, when mom came on the field, that was probably a lot of what I would have looked and sounded like. It was just totally about myself and trying to um, bring as much attention to myself as possible. Um, so much so that uh, I remember actually one time, uh, I think it was my sophomore year in college, and and uh, right before it was right before I got saved, and we were playing a game. My parents, you know, they they were great. They came to every game, and we were playing down in Southern Oregon. It was about 105 that day, and and uh, it was a it was a close game going back and forth, and. And, uh, you know, I, I, I was a jerk on the field. I mean, I would get in other guys' faces uh, uh, on the other team. And then if I didn't like my teammates and how they were playing, I was in their faces as well. And I remember after the game, my mom came up to me, and she put her finger right in my chest and said, if you ever embarrass me like that ever again, I'll never come to another one of your games. And, uh, and you know, that was kind of, I would say, the microcosm of who I was. I was a complete idiot in fact you know I coach high school football now and the person I was back then is exactly who I'm trying to help these young men not be 
and uh, it was it was embarrassing. And uh, I don't know why my parents even came to games, honestly, because that's it was embarrassing. At this point, you're faced with a major choice, probably the first big choice you've had to make outside of your decision to follow Jesus, choosing a college. What was that process like? I almost went to UCLA, took a trip there. I really had a unique connection with Terry Donahue, and I see Terry to this day. He does a lot of media work and does some games on radio, and I'll still run into him. And and I really, really enjoyed him through that recruiting process. And I saw the University of Washington and everything that they had accomplished, national championship, and then Damon became a starter, and then ultimately probation was coming and was looming, and all those things were there. And and I, and I had to make a decision: Do I stay home, or or do I kind of spread my own wings and and fly away? And I came back from my recruiting trip to UCLA, and in fact, told some people, I think that's where I'm going. I told my small group, I told Jason and Eric and Scott, I said, "Man, I think I'm really." leaning towards UCLA just to kind of fly the coop, just to make my faith real outside of just this cocoon of everything I know. And I love Washington as well. And, and Jim Lambright and the program and, and Tony Coates, who was playing there. A lot of the players I met obviously and had proximity to because of Damon and the program and our high school is only about an hour from the university of Washington. So all those things were kind of known commodities, but there was somewhat of an appeal to go to UCLA. And then and then ultimately, Damon and my dad sat me down and just said, hey, do whatever you'd like to do, but just know that your impact will never be as great in this community if you leave. That you could go win a Heisman Trophy at UCLA and maybe have a lot of fun and make an impact down there. But if you want to be around home and community and, and you think this is going to be home for you, it'll never be as powerful or as strong or as connected if you do it here at Washington. And that was ultimately, I think, the selling point. And... Uh, and I make the commitment to stay at Washington, and as I said, only about an hour away from home, so I wasn't going a million miles away, yet there was immense more freedom. And yet it was a time, and Tony Dungy talked about where he had to start to live his faith out, and that was the passing of his son, that he really had to kind of carry that through and say, okay, man, is this real? Right after Thanksgiving, uh, my son James is 18 years old. He's struggling with some emotional things, and he uh, decides to take his own life. And it, that, that's such a devastating blow. You, you can never prepare for that. And so now I have to think about you know, all the things that I've talked about maybe for the last 10 or 12 years on a very public platform, that the Lord is awesome. The Lord is the one who guides us. Um, the Lord is my strength and and I give him all the credit in my life. Well, now when something that bad happens, uh, a lot of people are looking. Do you really believe what you say? Uh, It's it's tested in in the crucible of difficult times. So that is kind of what I thought about. Do I really believe these things that I've said about the Lord these last 10 or 15 years. And uh, that was the test. And my wife and I were able to say, we, we do believe it. it. Even when it's tough, uh, we're going to demonstrate that. And for me, that realness came in those choices I had to make. When my freshman year, <laughs> I got a lot more time and a lot more freedom. And guys are making a lot different choices than I am. And there was no longer Mrs. Turner's and Debbie and Jason and, and Eric and Scott. Like I had so built in that structure, you know, kind of that that foundational element, and uh, and this is probably the largest part of my 
above and beyond podcast testimony or what have you and my journey through this. largest part of my story throughout the thread throughout my story and frankly why I think this door is open to do these podcasts is because of the relationships and the people that the God has really brought in my life at every turn and I get to college and it's a pastor by the name of Mike Gunn from Athletes in Action who very different Northeast Boston College through and through. Man, was he hyper competitive. Holy cow. Even with bad knees and everything, he thought he could beat all of us still. We played basketball and hockey and wiffle ball and had an absolute blast. But he came into my life much like Scott did, that he was there, that he was there with a, a team Bible study, that he was also somewhat new on campus. Uh, kind of like Scott was new in his ministry. Mike, in some ways, was new with Athletes in Action on campus there and ultimately put his kind of wing around me and said, hey, hey I, I can see that this is, and you're serious about this. Uh, let's continue to pursue this together. And we did. And those choices of living out my faith and making it real, and when guys are going to party, and guys are going upstairs to the other parts of the dorm with the girls, and guys are making these choices that that uh, that ultimately, I think so much of the conviction that was built for me in high school and that accountability uh, lived out, carried out through some of the same accountability and relationship into my college years. President versus general. I guess when I think of that, I think of legalism. Yes. It's a big word, right? Yes. And I hear your story and I hear a lot of black and white. It's this or this yep. when you were growing up. Is it an A or is it an F, mm-hmm. basically? you know, I, uh, A win or a loss. Is it a success or is it a failure? So tell me about what it's like to be living your faith that way in college. And you're trying to lead, be a general of a football team. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was some conflict. I mean, there was there's some natural tension. There was no doubt about it that, that Tim Tebow is a guy that um, in this day and age had so much success and won a national championship and Heisman and everything else. And there was quite a bit of critique and criticism and is this real and what's going on and on a much smaller scale for me in those years there was some of that same I think from teammates I think from the local media I think from people around is is this real like come on man you're really not going to drink yeah I'm really not going to drink you're really not going to sleep around I'm really not going to sleep around you're really not going to smoke yeah I'm really not going to smoke you're right on, on one extent, though, that feels almost legalistic, like that Old Testament law, like do not do this, do not do this, do not do this. But to me, it wasn't do nots, right? I never really opened those doors. So to me, and I remember sharing this with my roommate one time, he's like, man, I don't get how you do this. How, how do you not, you know, I, I don't understand. How, and I'd say, bro, I, those doors haven't been opened to me. You know, I, it, I, it's not a do not for me. It's what I get to do. And I get to do the other and I get to find peace in it. And I can see some of the chaos that comes in the decisions the other way. And I can see some of the hurt and some of the loss that comes on the other side of that. And to me, it wasn't a do not. I get to, I get to do and I get to live and I get to live out my testimony. But it wasn't, yeah, it wasn't clean and perfect. And I had a lot of really wonderful guys on my team that challenged me. And I, I frankly looked at it that way in college. I, I wasn't really bothered by that. I think much like Tim Tebow, I don't think it's, it's terribly bothered by some of the criticism that comes his way, right? As long as it's in your face and let's go. I had teammates 
they call me the golden boy, right? In college. I think that was my nickname or golden child or something. I don't know. So something like that, like blonde hair. And I was a workout maniac and way too vain, probably still am, but even more vain then, even though my six packs would attracted my now wife and she loved <laughs> me for that. And I didn't mind showing that off to her every once in a while. Um, but they call me the golden boy and they just, wow, you know, is the golden boy going to fail? Is he ever going to come out and drink with us? Is he ever going to come smoke with us? Is he ever going to screw up and do all of this? And again, I didn't necessarily look at it like I'm better and I'm more righteous. And I'm making the right choices and you're making the wrong. But there was certainly some of that sense of like, hey man, is this, is this real? And they made t-shirts. <laughs> A couple of teammates in college make t-shirts of because I, I had like Philippians 4.13 on my wristband. I had a picture of Hoppy in my locker. You know, I had some of those things as reminders to me of just my faith and just my walk and just my commitment and just what I want to be accountable to. And on the flip side, I had teammates, I think it was my last year of college, that made t-shirts of like the, the black horse from hell that rode in. And it was one of the revelation verses like, yeah, man, you can be the golden boy, but we're going to be hell. And, and it was like real, like it was that, that clear, like they're going to make t-shirts and poke fun at me, but it wasn't necessarily, I don't know. I, I didn't look at it as poking fun at me or criticism. I really did. Even then look at it as opportunity to connect. Like, that's all right. That's all right. You can do it. And, and actually it's kind of great. It's better to be hot or cold than lukewarm anyway. Revelation talks about that. So, right. <laughs> and you're challenging me and, and, and I get to kind of, live it out and, and hopefully not in some way challenge you back and throw it down your face. But I, I want you to see this as real and fast forward through my media career. And, and, and this, I want people to see this as real. You know, I want Mike Salk, my co-host every day to see this as real. I don't want just to see this as some like testimonial card or, you know, some speech. I, do. I want you to see this as real man. And that cultivated awesome relationships through college and pro to see that it's real. And when my teammate puts up in the, after you know, there's probably two stories that most represent that. And that is after the Nebraska, we played Nebraska. This was my red shirt sophomore year, my third year. And we had a really good team and we were top five in the country. And I really believe it. We all stayed healthy. We would have been right there in the Rose Bowl and lots of NFL guys and great players. And uh, we're playing Nebraska at home on one of the most beautiful days you're ever going to get in September. We're 2-0. and They're 2-0. and We're both top five in the country. Um, I remember walking the field the day before on a Friday, like, man, there's going to be 75,000 people in here, national broadcast. And there was some anxiety, but what an opportunity. What an amazing opportunity this is going to be. And it was just a perfect day. And the first quarter get hit and then get hit again. And Grant Wistrom ultimately lands on my ankle and it pops. And I'm like, oh, man. And I'd not been hurt really in high school, a concussion, but I'd not really been hurt before. And that ankle gets popped. I'm like, oh, man, I can't stand on it. I get up and I can't put weight on it. And we go back in and we try to tape it up and try to put this like air thing brace on. I just can't move. I just can't play. And uh, I can't put any weight on it. And um, I'm on crutches coming out, whatever, boots. And we have to watch that game. And we end up losing. And the next day, the newspaper, in my locker, Taped next to the picture of Hoppy in Philippians 4.13 is the newspaper article from that game and highlighted uh, Heward Sprains' his ankle. Highlighted Heward Sprains' his ankle, right written underneath Philippians 4.13, question mark. You can do all things through Christ who strengthens you, but you can't play on a sprained ankle. And that one stung. 
that one required me to kind of step out of the locker room, step into a quiet place, step into a bathroom stall and really sit there and process that. How am I going to handle that? And at this point, I'm what, 20 years of age, you know, I'm six or seven years into my, my journey and my faith story and everything else. But man, that, that was a hit right between the eyes. That was a hit right to the heart, right? That here I'm trying to live this out and compete and battle, but this intersection of faith and sports (laughs) and what a symbol right there of, okay, all right, faithful guy. All right, Jesus guy. All right, Philippians 4.13, golden boy guy. Now what? Now what are you going to do with your teammates openly calling you out with your inability to do all things through Christ who strengthens me and not play on a sprained ankle in the biggest game of your life at that point? And that was one of those real, I think, um, grounding points, humbling points, uh, not going to be perfect points yet again, kind of like ripping that faucet out of the wall in that Sumner High School game, because there's part of me that just wanted to cry. There's part of me that wanted to lash out. There's part of me that wanted to go scream at those teammates. And I have a pretty good idea who it was. I think it was those old old linemen that, you know, had the had the black shirts from the face of hell, right? But ultimately, what a witness and what an opportunity to keep being real. Keep being real to those guys in those moments as much as you can. As much as you can. So I think that was one that uh that really, you know, stood out in the grounding process. And then the other fast forward to this faith and intersection deal was my last year. And it was a little different story where the persecution didn't come from within. You know, and speaking of persecution, I would love to play, you know, the clip from John Kitna, who joined us in this podcast in episode number three, because persecution is going to be part of this journey if you're going to walk for him. And John talked about that when he tried to wear that hat with the cross on it and the impact ultimately it had in his community. I always wore a cross cap. I've, I've worn a cross cap since I came into the NFL. The guy, the guy who discipled me, Eric Bowles, said, when you go in there, you make sure people know where you stand. So I, I've always worn a cross cap. And in Cincinnati, I had a, you know, four or five different colors made up, and I would wear them before games, after games. In, my, in every press conference, I was always wearing a cross cap. And uh, I think, you know, like I said, game 11 or 12, the next day I get a fine, $5,000 fine for wearing a cross cap in my post-game interview. And, uh, <laughs> and so the media found out about that. And it became this incredible. I had people sending me money in the mail. Here I am, NFL guy, making millions of dollars, right? People are sending me money to pay for my fine. Mm. And uh, so much so that we had a, a, uh, a businessman in Cincinnati anonymously send the thing to my agent, said, you tell him to keep wearing that hat and I'll keep paying his fines every week. Well, in the NFL, fines double. So it would have been 5000 10000 20000 so on and so forth every week that you wore it. And, you know, I thought about being a rebel and all that stuff, and, 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 you know, I was reminded of what Carl Payne taught us in Seattle, which is you submit to the authorities placed above you mm-hmm. as a believer. Mm-hmm. And so uh, we took the cap off, took the cross cap off, and our next two games were on the road. And then we came back, and we had a couple games left. And when we came back, I think we played San Francisco at home. And uh, they estimated that 10,000 cross caps were in the stands that day because there was a couple of Christian stores that started selling them. And – uh you know, when you think about the providence of God and I mm. think about like Joseph mm. and what he told his brothers was, you know, what, what man intended for evil, God meant for good. And I think about how, you know, they find me $5,000. They end up rescinding the fine, mm. but they find me $5,000 because they wanted to take the cross cap off. But it actually, you know, <laughs> made it greater mm. because of the providence of God. So mm. that's, that's one way I think about that. 
So in dealing with some persecution in-house early in my college career, and then fast forward another year and a half to my last year of college, and we played at Arizona State, and we played them in the first game of the year, and uh, we played Fright Night Freeman, and we played on the on the grass that the previous game played on. It was the Super Bowl, and to this day, it was the most incredible field and kind of venue that I had, I think, played on ever. It was the first game of the year. It was early September. It's like 90 degrees. I love the sunshine. Remember, I like to be tan. It showed off my abs better for my wife, now wife. And uh, I love the sun, still love the sun. And we got to play in the sun. And we were top 10 in the country going in. And they were top 10. And we're playing them. And it's some really good players and ultimate pros. And I got to play. That's the first game with Dane Looker, my buddy from childhood, from junior high and high school. And Dane came and transferred from Western to play. And I remember looking at him and just the day before it walked through, like, dude, can you believe this? We're going to get to do this, man. We're going to get to play here. Look at this field. This is where they played the Super Bowl in January. There was, it was like a putting. It was so perfect. And Dane was going to start. And ultimately, I think he set the then record at that point for most receptions in a game. He had like 11 receptions. And that year, we transitioned from being a run team to a shotgun and spread team. And and Arizona State wasn't ready for it. And man, was it fun. Just throwing it all over the yard, having an absolute blast. And ultimately, we get to the final minute of that game. And it was a back and forth, back and forth. And and we have a, we have a third and three with a, less than a minute to go. And we were down at that point, I think down a field goal or a touchdown, or not not touchdown, down a field goal at that point, third and three. We come over to the sidelines, minutes ago, pandemonium. And we're going to run speed option. And um, for those of you that may or may not know me, I'm not a great runner. But the speed option play that night was somewhat effective. Uh, once again, it was a little bit of a disguise, and they didn't know what was coming. And we were going to run speed option, I think, for the third time. And we come over into the sidelines. You okay with that? Yeah, it's third and three. I'm good with that. And Coach Lambright's like, no, don't screw up the pitch. You know, just make sure you do your fundamentals right. I'm running back to the huddle. Don't screw up your pitch. Don't screw up your pitch. Don't screw up the pitch. Run the play. Screw up the pitch. Throw it behind the running back. And it bounces for a minus 14-yard loss. And it is fourth and 17. And this and this game is sometimes on replay back here in the Pacific Northwest. And I've watched it a few different times through the years. And now that I'm a commentator... And I think to myself, if I was commentating during this game and talking about the quarterback, I'd be like, what is he doing? I was in, I was in a trance. Like, I'm not telling you to go watch something on YouTube or whatever, but if you're so inclined, and just like YouTube, whatever, UW-ASU 1998, because what ultimately happens is pretty crazy. But if you watch it after I screw up the pitch, I am in a trance. I don't even look over to the sidelines. Time is ticking. It's fourth and 17. We're now at our minus 35 yard, 33 yard line. And ultimately, I call this play called Copper X. I don't even look to them. I don't even know what the sideline called. I called Copper X, and the signal is flipping a penny for like a, a copper, right? A, a penny. So I'm calling Copper and I'm giving them the signal and call the protection and the shotgun. And if, if I told you we ran Copper X 10 times in training camp to Reggie Davis, I can clearly tell you we completed zero of those. Reggie was a converted defensive player, was a fantastic athlete, turned into an awesome tight end, played in the NFL as a tight end, coaches in the NFL, is now a coach. But we did not complete that pass one time in training camp. Why I called Copper X in that moment, I have no idea. 
that I call Copper X. And, uh, and they're in quarters coverage, which means four safeties. So it's not even that great of a call. In fact, I ran into their defensive coordinator, Coach English, years later, calling a football game for ESPN. And when he walked into the room, this has been 15 years since that play happened. We walk in the room and he looks at me and he's like, quarters coverage versus that route. Should have had it every time. 100 out of 100. He's still mad 15 years later because Reggie Davis runs this route and he is so fast. And I take the snap and I throw it to him. He catches it. He breaks a tackle. It's a 67-yard touchdown with less than 30 seconds to go. It is from the, from the worst play to the most epic play and 70,000 people go silent. I am still in a daze. I then run down the field. I do some celebration I've never done before. I have never done since. I fall to my knees. I'm like a gymnast. I'm somehow like bent over backwards on my knees, pointing to the skies. I get picked up. Then it goes to me on the sidelines, and I'm sobbing. I am just sobbing. And Dane Looker is hugging me. It is all, it is the most epic moment. It is physical. It is mental. It is emotional. It is spiritual. It is everything, man. It's just all played out. And we win this game on a fourth and 17 play. And I really, I could not grasp it. Kind of like me ripping off that water faucet, right? I just, I couldn't grasp it. It was in a totally different way. I mean, Kevin Calabro was on the call of that game, the great Kevin Calabro, and they take a shot of me on the sidelines. And I think Calabro says something like, he's uncontrollable. He's a mess. And I was a total mess. And I'm just hugging Dane. He had a thigh bruise at that point. Like he got hit so hard, his thigh pad exploded and his thigh exploded. So he's like limping around. But I remember hugging him and holding him so tight to me and just sobbing like, can you believe that? And that game ends, and I talk to the reporters afterwards. I'm like, I have no idea what just happened. All I know is that was some divine intervention. Because for all of those things to happen the way that they did, and for third and three, and for me to screw it up, and the ball to hit the ref, and for them not to recover, and it's fourth and 17, and I run a play, I don't even look to the sidelines, and I call a play that we should have never, ever ran against a coverage that never should have worked, and Reggie runs the perfect route, and we connect in the perfect way, and he breaks a tackle, and we win this thing on a 67-yard touchdown pass, and it's divine intervention. And I don't think much of it, right? I mean, I just, I really don't. And, and then I ended up doing, I think the next night, a local radio show, like on that Sunday night. And it was walking through that play and everything I just shared with you, I did on the local radio. And I said, it was divine intervention once again. And the host is like, divine intervention. You mean God played a role in that? I'm like, yeah. And I think God clearly played a role in that. I think that was an unbelievable moment. I think I got to praise him. I think I got to celebrate it. I think it overwhelmed me. I think everything in my very fiber of, of, of sports and faith all kind of culminated in that moment. Yeah, I absolutely believe there was some divine intervention. And whereas the criticism of Philippians 4.13 was blasted all over my locker, you know, the year previous or two years previous, this was a different, this was now a different encounter because it wasn't teammates. It was local ministry. It was local pastors. It was people that were now writing me letters. That was in the day and age, uh, the Flintstone age, where there were no engines and cars and there was no cell phones and emails. So I was getting letters. I got letters to the football offices from pastors that were like, will you please not talk about that as divine intervention? You're really hurting you know, your ministry and you're really showing your immaturity in your walk and in your faith by saying that that was in any way divinely involved or that God would care in any way about some touchdown or some game, some football game. Man, and that also was one of those, I guess, real faith-grounding moments where 
I, I had to step back and I had really had to walk through that with the Scott Sears in my life, the Mike Guns in my life, some of the men of some wisdom in my life. And, uh, and that was hard. That criticism was infinitely harder than the player criticism because those teammates, they got to experience me every day. They got to see my good, my bad, and my ugly. But they got to see me, I guess, try to seek out my righteousness or some of my truth. These pastors had no idea, right? And they were just watching me from afar. They didn't know me, but they felt like they knew enough to write to me and say, please don't do that. Please don't share your faith in that way. And other people too, you know, and people even close to the program and around the program, like, hey, you know, that faith thing, it's great, like inside, but let's, let's be a little slow. Let's be a little guarded. Let's be a little careful on pronouncing it, you know, in such a public manner on the outside in that way. And those are real learning lessons in this intersection of faith and sports for me and what that would look like in my journey. Well, there's roughly half my story, half my journey. There's a lot of my formative years through my time in Puyallup and at the University of Washington, but there's a whole lot more shaping that's been done over the last 20 years or so. And I know a whole lot more shaping in my journey moving forward. You'll hear the rest of the story. And I think what's more to come and even more shaping down the road. You'll hear that in our next episode. Above and Beyond, the intersection of faith and sports.